Good morning and greetings to each of you. We're going to continue looking at the letter to the Philippians this morning. Uh, we're going to be we're ready for chapter three, and so we're going to be looking at the first eleven verses there. While you are turning there, um, just want to um, give a bit of a recap of of what is going on here and what. Uh, what the, the first part of this letter was about, and, and so forth. <clears throat> so, um, Philippi, interestingly, was the location of the first European church established that we have record of in the New Testament. And um, a small town, relatively small town, compared to cities like Rome and Corinth and, and so forth, about 10,000 people, which is about the size of Warrington. But there was no synagogue there, and so there were apparently few, if any, Jews that actually lived there or were part of the church. Paul had a unique bond with these believers, as is reflected in this encouraging and powerful letter to the Philippians. And while joy is often given as the theme of this book, uh, and we do see that that emanates from the gospel, from the epistle. Paul's focal point and emphasis is really on Jesus and the message of the gospel. But that's the under, and that's the underlying reason for this joy. So there's a joyful koinonia or fellowship connection that he expresses with these believers. Not so much because they have a lot in common socially and personally, but because of their shared uh, love of Jesus and the gospel. Paul also made it clear in the first part of this book that he does everything for the sake of Jesus Christ. Uh, More than anything else, his primary focal point, his focus in all of life is Jesus Christ. And that comes above his own comforts, his own desires, and he challenged the believers there in Philippi to do the same. Uh, and the same is true for us as well. Then in chapter 2, he elaborates on what it means to have selfless humility. And we see that Jesus Christ so perfectly exemplified that. He encourages us to be of the same mind. And that includes loving our brothers and sisters. A bit of what Ivan referred to just uh, a few minutes ago. And that we're in the same kingdom and in the same family, being united in spirit, having that supernatural koinonia or connection and bond with our brothers and sisters, and then counting those around us, counting others more significant than ourselves, uh, and doing so in humility and in Christian brotherhood. Then we come to the beautiful hymn or poem uh, describing Jesus, uh, one of the a, an incredibly theologically rich uh, description of who Jesus is, showing the humiliation that ended in crucifixion, but then followed by his glorious exaltation, all because he was willing to empty himself, humbling himself, and becoming obedient and uh, willing to die on the cross. It was then that God highly exalted him. And then, 
So that's the, what we are to aspire to, what we are called to. But then he gives some examples of Timothy, a half-Jew, and Epaphroditus, a Gentile, as examples of what the transformative power of the gospel can do through a divine empowerment and resulting in Christ-likeness. Um, it is God who works in us, in them, through divine enablement to transform lives into Christ-likeness. And then through divine expressions, becoming a shining lights to the world around us. Not murmuring or arguing with each other, but rather offering hope to the unbelievers around us with the wonder of salvation. And so this morning we're going to continue here in chapter 3, and I've entitled this message, Knowing Christ Jesus. Um, and we're going to begin in verse 1. I'm not going to read the entire text together until a little bit later, but um, we're just going to work down through here a bit and look at these uh, verses uh, together. Verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Now, when you see the word finally in Scripture, you often think in terms of he's, well, he is concluding something. He's wrapping something up, but he's not wrapping up this letter. He's actually in the middle of it. And he is not about to conclude the letter, but I think rather what he is doing, he's wrapping up his teaching on what this selfless humility is all about. And he's going to have one more example here. But then he interjects this admonition, rejoice in the Lord. I don't know what was in Paul's mind when he interjected this, um, why he felt compelled to remind the Philippian believers at this point we should rejoice in the Lord. But I do think that there's uh, several aspects we can at least think about and ponder a bit. The selfless humility that was modeled by Jesus is not unattainable. It's not unreachable for us. It's doable, and it's what believers are called to do. But at the same time, it's not something to become discouraged about just because it seems, it seems like a high bar, but rather we are to rejoice in the Lord. And I believe that when we focus on what God, who God is and what he wants of us, rather than our own ambitions, it's far easier for us to rejoice and to rejoice in the Lord. God is the one that's in control. We're the instruments in his hand, but the results aren't determined by us. We don't control the results. We're simply doing what God wants us to be doing. And rejoicing in the Lord frees us to live with selfless humility while allowing God to bring about the results that, are, that he chooses, that are pleasing to him. It's interesting that Paul uses this phrase here at the beginning of chapter 3, because then in chapter 4, verse 4, in his closing remarks, he says this, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Uh, so obviously he's wanting to emphasize this. Not only does he repeat it in chapter 4, 
but he emphasizes it. Rejoice in the Lord always. And then he repeats it again. And again I say, rejoice. Our joy, our, we, we are commanded to do this. And so let's rejoice in the Lord. It's not that we're rejoicing in the circumstances we find ourselves or for the circumstance, and not for the circumstances we find ourselves, but we're to rejoice in the Lord and who he is. He now seems to, uh, and I don't understand, and I don't know what the importance is of the closing sentence there in that, to write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Um, I will just leave that, that alone. He continues in verse 2 then, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul now shifts, this changes the subject, but he's setting the stage for he want, what he wants to tell the Philippian believers about himself. But first there's his warning. Who is Paul warning these believers about? Um, Another question that I have to ask myself, are these three distinctly different warnings, or is it one warning expressed in three different ways? Um, my impression is that it is a singular warning, and Paul is just using three different ways of describing uh, who, who to watch out for, what to be on the lookout for. There is not an indication that this was a problem in Philippi at this time. But Paul is warning them, the believers there nonetheless to look at, be on the lookout. He doesn't name them, but it's pretty obvious that he's referring to the Judaizers. Now, the Judaizers were Jews who called themselves Christians but they essentially insisted that only Jews could become Christians. Now, I don't know that they said it in that term, but basically they, but they would force non-Jews to be circumcised and to follow other Jewish laws in order to become a Christian. And Paul is warning them about this. They were clear that repenting and believing was not enough to become a believer but rather it was only after they were circumcised and following Jewish law that they could really be saved. Now that seems pretty outrageous to us in a lot of ways um, here 2,000 years later, but think about in Acts as you recount, as we read through that, it wasn't until you get up into chapter, I forget now exactly, about chapter 10, that there are Gentiles that are welcomed into the church. And that raised a host of questions. Up until that time, it was all Jews, perhaps proselytes in chapter 2, because they were there from all over different countries. But it was geared toward the Jews. And then all of a sudden, when Peter was confronted with that, it was a whole, uh, a whole change in the way of thinking. And then we have the council in Acts 15 
that issue that settled the question about circumcision because it was a question at that point in chapter 15. So the Judaizers were the ones that were insisting that were basically disagreeing with the Acts 15 council and were insisting that there has to be circumcision that goes along with being a believer. And so they would often show up after a church was established and start promoting their heretical ideas and doctrines there. And it created confusion, it created questions, and it created havoc within these churches and among believers, and especially among the Gentiles, because they, didn't, they weren't sure what to think. <clears throat> so Paul is warning the Philippian church here, be on the lookout, beware. And um, most, like I said, most of the believers in the Philippian church were... Gentiles, and so they may have wondered about this if somebody raised this question. Paul refers to the Judaizers as dogs, since that's how they're characterized. The reason is because the Judaizers referred to Gentiles as dogs, and so he was basically using their own terminology to describe them. And uh, it feels like a rather derogatory term. I don't know how derogatory it was. Dogs in that culture at that time were probably not household pets. They were more uh, wild animals. But, but he, re he refers to He says, beware or look out for the dogs. And then he goes further to describe these Judaizers as evildoers and as mutilators, a direct reference to their insistence and their emphasis on physical circumcision, the idea of mutilation. If these false teachers had not already come, these Philippian believers should be on the lookout for them because they likely will show up at some point. Paul then turns this whole issue and this warning on its head by declaring in verse 3, for we are the circumcision. So he's telling them to watch out for this and calling them dogs and mutilators and evildoers, but then he turns it around and says, we are the circumcision. Rather than becoming distracted or deceived by the Judaizers insisting they be circumcised, Paul boldly declares to these believers that they are already circumcised spiritually. Their hearts have been circumcised. And he continues on by stating that being circumcised in the heart means that we believers worship the Spirit of God. We glory in or boast in Jesus Christ. And we put no confidence in the flesh or what we do to merit our salvation. Again, using the word flesh is a direct uh, reference back to the idea of circumcision and then also just simply what is required for salvation. While we don't specifically have Judaizers today that I know of, or certainly not that influence our churches and so forth, there do remain today ideas and philosophies that are promoted by some that undermine the transformative work of Jesus' redemptive uh, work on the cross, the transforming power. 
And I, I'm just going to mention a few. This is certainly not an exhaustive list by any means, but it could include the idea of adding certain requirements or works to earn one's salvation. I mean, just in a general way, that is what the Judaizers were doing. But it could also be making false promises of the prosperity gospel, that if you do this, these blessings will come. That is a distortion of the gospel. It can come in the form of diminishing the importance of obedience to God's word. There's a lot of people that find it quite easy to disregard significant portions of scripture or specific commands that are given in scripture. They just rationalize their way around it. So that's one form, I believe, as well, of um, deception. Or perhaps the false hope of unconditional eternal security, regardless how one lives one's life. Those are all different tactics that Satan uses. And as we heard last week, Satan's tactics vary quite a bit, but they always involve lying and distortion of truth. Uh, that's how Satan operates, and he gets us to try to think differently about various aspects of truth. Continuing in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, depending how you read this or how you understand this, one could certainly conclude that Paul here is just simply bragging about himself. Um, he, he's pretty clear about it that he is bragging about himself. But given the context, he is making a point that by bragging, like the, the way the Judaizers do, that bragging is actually pretty insignificant in light of what Jesus did. And so he can brag all he wants, but it really does not mean much apart when you compare it to what Jesus did. The Judaizers made a big deal about their Jewish credentials, their Jewish identity, and they used that to shame those that were from non-Jewish backgrounds to show that they're clearly inferior and inadequate in the eyes of God unless they do these certain things. And so what Paul is doing here is that he is basically telling the Judaizers, if earthly credentials are so important, I have far superior credentials than probably any of you do. And so he lists them as a way of just making a point. And so this, there are six things listed here. The way it's written, you could say seven, but I believe it's really six. So first of all, circumcised on the eighth day, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church, and blameless under the law. 
So the first three credentials were hereditary. He had no control over them. Well, I say hereditary. The first one, obviously, is circumcised on the eighth day, but he still had no control over that. But he simply acquired these at birth. There was no choice, and yet he had a perfect pedigree. And then the last three were credentials that he earned. He worked hard for. He made a choice, and as a result, he was the most elite, or he was among the most elite of the Jews. Now, the first credential he lists here might seem misplaced to us. Literally, the first thing he mentions is circumcised on the eighth day. But to the Judaizers, the circumcision was of primary importance. It was a point of emphasis. However, the reality was many Jews were not actually circumcised on the eighth day as prescribed by the law for whatever reason but often sometime later. And certainly those that converted to Judaism, it was much later. So Paul is very intentional in saying that he was properly circumcised as the law dictates. And then he continues. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Again, one of the elite tribes. The tribe of the first king of Israel. And as you remember, Paul's name before his conversion was Saul. He was actually named after the first king of Israel. Ten tribes turned their back on Israel. The tribes of Judah and Benjamin did not completely forsake God and their, uh, the, their heritage. So he was from the tribe of Benjamin. And then it says he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a full-blooded Jew. Both his parents were Jews. He could trace his lineage all the way back to Abraham, not only that of his father, but also that of his mother as well. Very few Jews could claim these three credentials. And he had them by birth. And he had done nothing to earn those himself. But he was, he was a a Jew that was differentiated from many, most others. However, the next three credentials that he lists, he worked hard for, and he earned them. He chose to pursue these with relentless pursuit from a very young age. A Pharisee, that was the strictest sect of the Jews, very religious, the best schooling. It was the most prestigious level of the Jews. He was a persecutor of the church. He was blindly zealous to defend Judaism and the Pharisees up until the moment of his Damascus Road experience. And then it says he was blameless when it came to the law. When it came to following the law, he followed it as perfectly as was humanly possible. And no one could find any fault in him. So now that Paul had laid out this impressive resume and collection of credentials and accomplishments, he turns right around and makes the statement that regardless how impressive, 
how, and the incredible advantage and privilege that comes with such a resume, whatever gain he had, past tense, that's all changed. It all changed when he encountered Jesus on the Damascus Road. He gladly gave up all of that for the honor and the privilege of following Jesus instead and serving him. So Paul is now modeling that same selfless humility that we saw demonstrated by Jesus in that beautiful poem and hymn in chapter 2. That of giving up his inherent privilege, his power and position, giving up everything that he rightfully could have claimed, and a willingness to lay that down for the sake of Jesus Christ. Certainly, Jesus was the perfect example, as we saw in chapter 2. Timothy, a half-Jew, and Epaphroditus, a Gentile, also showed that selfless humility looked like the sacrificial lives that they lived. Now Paul, a full-blooded Jew, also lays it out to that end. Our earthly credentials that bring with them the power, the influence, and privilege are simply worthless in God's kingdom. Whatever status he had gained with these impressive credentials and background, Paul gladly lays these aside for the sake of Jesus Christ. I find it insightful that in this letter, Paul makes it clear that one's background does not matter. By giving an example of himself as a full-blooded Jew, Timothy, a half-Jew, and Epaphroditus, a Gentile. It doesn't matter what your background is. One's earthly accomplishments don't matter, period. Now, these particular credentials probably or may not seem as impressive to us, but what credentials do we have or what accomplishments do we hold on to? What gives us additional power and influence and privilege in today's culture or in our church environment? Perhaps it's our godly heritage. You know, my parents or my grandparents or great-great-great-grandparents, whatever, but we somehow latch on to that. Perhaps it's my upbringing. Perhaps it's who I know. Perhaps it's my education, or it's my career or job, or the position that I hold in church. And while none of these are necessarily bad, according to Paul, when it comes to Jesus Christ, they are worthless. And we should give all of that up so that we can fully focus on Jesus and who he is, not on who we are or what we've done. So he continues in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now just let me read that again. I count everything as loss 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness that of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul considers everything that he has ever done all his impressive accomplishments, his credentials, a total loss. Gladly giving it up as if they had never had them. All for the privilege and the unsurpassed value of knowing Jesus Christ. You know, I had to stop and ponder that a number of times. Do we really understand or grasp what Paul is saying with that? Do we comprehend the honor that we have of knowing Jesus and having a relationship with him? Paul continues that he chose to give up or lose all these things that he had worked so hard for to validate himself and his credibility as a person that he now considers them as rubbish is the way that it puts it here. Other translations use other words, but literally it means stinky garbage or a pile of manure. That's what it means. He counts all those credentials, all those accomplishments as nothing more than a pile of manure. Why wouldn't we gladly throw aside our most impressive collection of garbage or manure of our accomplishments in exchange for a gemstone of priceless value. We can't hang on to them both. It's interesting that over the last several months, we've heard several sermons about what it means to be in Christ. Paul uses, he doesn't use that exact word, but he uses in him here in this passage as well. He uses the example of giving up our pile of manure in exchange for and in order to gain Jesus Christ, that priceless gem, and to be found in him. As long as we're hanging on to our, the identity that we have with our own credentials, our own accomplishments, our own power, our influence and privilege, who we are, we have not fully surrendered to Christ. And we have not grasped the worthlessness of our own accomplishments in comparison to who Jesus is and the priceless gem of knowing him and putting our identity and who we are in Christ Jesus, putting it in Christ, not in our own worthless credentials. In verse 9, then, gaining Christ and being found in him is not a result of what we've done, but rather it's, it's not based on my own righteousness. It's based on the righteousness God gives because of our faith and trust in him. It's nothing we've done, but it's simply because he grants that to us. 
Paul suffered the loss of all things in order to gain Christ and be found in him, to know him and the power of his resurrection and fellowship, and the word koinonia shows up here again, of his suffering in being conformed to his death. In verse 8, he declared that he counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The more I looked at verse 10, the more I realized that I don't really understand what all that means. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering and being conformed to his death. But I have several observations and want to make just a few points here. First of all, Paul incorporates the resurrection, sufferings, and death in this picture of knowing Jesus, which both validates and emphasizes Christ's redemptive work for us. So he kind of includes the summary of the gospel right in with that statement. Secondly, Jesus is the focal point of that. It's all about him. It's knowing him, his resurrection, his suffering, his death. And so Jesus is really the focal, the, the focal point of that. And thirdly is the verbs that are used there. Um, I think it's verbs. I'm not uh, sure now. But uh, that it, knowing Jesus involves power or dynamis, which the word dynamite comes from, fellowship, koinonia, and being conformed. Or um, it's a form of the word morphed, transformed might be another way. And all of that comes from God. It's not anything that we have within ourselves. His resurrection power saved us. His resurrection power redeemed us. The suffering that we endure for the sake of Christ ultimately brings us in closer fellowship with Jesus closer koinonia with Jesus. And we will become more like Jesus as we die to our selfish desires. Um, so those are just a few thoughts. And so how do we learn to know Christ? I would just make a few comments here. I would say that how we spend our time is probably a good indicator of how great a priority knowing Christ is for us. How do we spend our time? Spending time in the Word, in prayer, in fellowship, in communion with Him, that is certainly learning to know Jesus. It's not about, it's not knowing about Him, but it's about knowing Him as a person. How do we spend our time? I would also suggest that we won't know who Christ is. We won't know Christ through social media or podcasts or our favorite YouTube channel. That's not where we're going to learn to know Christ. We might learn about him, but again, we're not going to learn to know him. Knowing Christ 
involves selfless humility as described in chapter 2. Emptying of ourselves, dying to our own rights and privileges, putting Jesus first, losing ourselves and our identities both in Christ and for Christ. Reading verses 3 through 5 again from chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his, to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Knowing Jesus Christ is intentionally choosing to set aside, to remove, to throw out the earthly credentials that we have legitimately attained, that we've earned, that we worked so hard for, and to give those up for the priceless gem of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. In conclusion, I'd like to just read these first 11 verses um, together, or read them, read them now in, as, as a whole. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in, this, in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Again, just emphasizing verse 8 and adding a few phrases in here. Indeed, I count everything all of my impressive accomplishments and credentials as loss of the surpassing worth, the priceless value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, all my earthly accomplishments, and count them as rubbish, as stinky garbage or pile of manure, in order that I may gain the priceless gem of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this incredible testimony of the Apostle Paul and how he 
came to conclude and to see the incredible difference in value of his own accomplishments, his own credentials, compared to that of what you have to offer for us in Christ Jesus. I ask that as we consider these truths, as we consider our own lives, that you would open our hearts to see what it means to know you and how incredibly worthless anything that we have attained of our own is in comparison. Help us to, help us to relentlessly pursue who you are and not to be hanging on to those accomplishments of our own. We commit uh, the day to you. Ask that you would direct us, guide and direct us in Jesus' name. Amen.